0: Welcome to The Philosopher's Nest. I'm Calvin Ostrom. And I'm Lewis Williams. The Philosopher's Nest is a podcast that showcases the work, insights, and experiences of graduate students in philosophy. This podcast is generously supported by the Faculty of Philosophy at the University of Oxford and Lineker College, Oxford.
1: Today, we're going to be joined by Alexandra Gustafsson, a graduate student at the University of Toronto. We'll be talking primarily about our research in the philosophy of love, as well as her insights about personality disorders and mental health in the discipline of philosophy. If, after listening, you'd like to get in touch with Alexandra, you can email her at a.gustafson at mail.utoronto.ca, or see her Twitter account at alexgus with two X's and two S's.
0: Alexandra Gustafson, welcome to The Philosopher's Nest.
2: It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you.
0: So, how did you become interested in philosophy? I understand that you're tempted by another subject.
2: That's right. That's right. So, as an undergraduate, I actually began in English because I had a passion for poetry. Philosophy found me soon after. I think I realized that what I loved so much about literature was actually the philosophy that was contained in it. So, I spent the second half of my undergrad career taking exclusively philosophy courses. Ended up with a philosophy major, English minor. Uh, Then went on to pursue a master's in philosophy where I then wrestled with the old change of heart. Uh, I wasn't sure whether to pursue doctoral studies uh, or uh, an MFA for poetry actually. But at the end of the day it's the existentialists that got me. I just couldn't get away from them and as wonderful as poetry is as an outlet as a medium for exploring love which is what I write about now it's just not the same when you can't you can't grapple with those titanic uh, figures um, camus and sartre and the lot
1: so in the context of the philosophy of love does your experience in poetry in an academic setting influence the way that you approach the philosophy of love
2: it does absolutely so I'm one of these philosophers that walks the fine line between analytic and continental traditions. And I think that my background in poetry has a lot to do with this. So generally speaking, I don't shy away from the metaphorical or the vague, that which is mysterious. And I think that that's because of my poetry background.
1: So to start with the big question then, what is love?
2: Baby, don't hurt me. (laughs) My students, every class, every class, they like to tell me that they've just found this new song. They've heard it for the first time. Have I heard it? I have. (laughs) So what is love? Love, I think, is best understood as a kind of experience. It's something that we go through, we feel. But interestingly, love is also something that happens to us. And I think that reconciling uh, these different features is part of part of the work that is the philosophy of love.
0: Mm. And so you mentioned there's a philosophy of love. What sorts of things have like philosophers said about love? It seems like a topic that's not really commonly taught.
2: That's right. So philosophers of love ask all kinds of questions. In particular, very popular right now are questions about rationality. So why do we love? For what reasons do we love the particular people that we do? Because here's a puzzle. We tend to think that we love people for reasons, right? Like they're, they're kind, they're charming, they're, uh, they're handsome, whatever the case may be. But the difficulty is these are largely generic properties. Anybody can be kind and handsome. So why do we love the people that we do? That's just one puzzle. Other questions include, um, you know, the metaphysics of love. What exactly love is? Is it a mental state? Is it a disposition? Is it an action, a choice? And I work in the phenomenology of love, which studies the experience of love, the what it's like.
1: So in studying the phenomenology of love, is that best understood as a kind of sub-question as to the overall what is love question? Or do you think that maybe you can reduce the what is love question to simply the phenomenology of love?
2: An excellent question. I'm not sure. I used to believe that um, what was essential about love was its experience, such that it could be distilled down to just the experience itself. But after working on the dissertation for a couple of years now, um, I sort of despair at the thought that love can be distilled down to any one thing in particular. So Tom Herka, who works at the University of Toronto and is on my committee, has a view that what love is, is a syndrome. So what is a syndrome? Think of something like a cold So a cold comes with several symptoms, right? Such as like a runny nose, maybe a headache, possibly a fever. But a cold doesn't need to have all of these symptoms in order to be considered a cold, right? A runny nose may be sufficient. Well, Tom thinks that it's the same sort of thing with love. So love, you may have any number of symptoms, that is the desire to spend time with a person, care for their well-being, this sort of thing but that not any particular one of these is necessary for love to be present. I'm more compelled by this kind of view these days. So ultimately, what count as the necessary and sufficient conditions of love, I'm not sure. Hmm.
0: Obviously, you know, we've been talking about love in a really broad way, but it seems like there's lots of components to love, as you were just sort of gesturing at. I guess I'm wondering, do you think we should approach love by looking at its stages? So you think love, you know, we fall in love, we fall out of love, and then there's like mutual love and even like unrequited love. What do you think about that sort of approach, fine-grained approach to, to love, that is?
2: I think that that is an excellent way in, because I think that there are some very interesting asymmetries between falling into love and falling out of love that by paying particular attention to those stages, we can learn a lot from. So something that I think is interesting is if you think about falling in love and the first time you sort of realize that it's happening to you, that experience can be so destabilizing. You know, we talk about falling in love and it really is experienced as a kind of vertigo falling out of love seems to be different. While it is destabilizing, it doesn't seem to shake up your whole worldview in the same kind of way. And interestingly, once you're at the point of self-reflection where you're asking yourself, am I still in love? We might think that that's enough to call into question whether you are in fact. Whereas in the early stages of love, wondering, am I in love? Maybe, maybe doesn't necessarily mean that you are in the same way that wondering whether you're falling out of love seems to indicate that you are. So yes, I think that looking at different stages and kinds of love is an excellent way in. And in fact, Unrequited love is a particular pet project of mine. I have much to say about that.
0: Seeing as you have some things to say about unrequited love, I believe you wrote an article for Psyche, which is a sort of, if I'm not mistaken, sort of popular philosophy, popular psychology, um, sort of essay catalog. What was it like writing this piece of popular philosophy? And what was that article really about? Writing this piece
2: was so different from anything else that I've had to do, anything for academia, and that was incredibly refreshing and rewarding. Writing popular philosophy is, I find, quite different from writing academic philosophy. You have permission to to be metaphorical and to use turns of linguistic phrase and, and things that are otherwise forbidden in academia and in this way i find that expression is so much easier and perhaps particularly when it comes to the subject of love it's so difficult to talk about love with precision and clarity and and these are, are of course the hallmarks of of academic philosophy and so i find that The content really does suit the form. It's been such a pleasure, just the experience itself. Um, But as for the article, yes. So I wrote a piece for Psyche about why it is sublime to love someone who doesn't love you back. And this is, of course, to do with unrequited love and my own experience well, the, the, the thrust of the, uh, of the argument is that love itself is sublime, whether it's returned or not. And this is because love gestures at something super sensible, something beyond our capabilities of understanding, and is sublime in the Kantian sense in this way. And so thus it doesn't matter whether our love is returned or not. It's still something sublime and super sensible that we can participate in. And thus, it reveals a unique and noble capacity in the lover, which I think is something to take heart in, even if our beloved doesn't love us back.
1: What exactly does it mean, then, for love to be sublime?
2: For love to be sublime is to be something beyond understanding, beyond our capacity to grasp. So Kant's sublime is typically invoked in images of like great mountains or vast oceans, expansive deserts. It's these kinds of scenes that evoke sublimity for Kant. Things that are so large or magnificent or beyond our grasp that we really can't understand them. And Though Kant would would certainly disagree with me that love is is one of these things, um, I think that by its very nature it is ungraspable, and thus falls within the category of the sublime.
1: In presenting unrequited love as sublime, it seems that you know your article might have an almost therapeutic effect on the reader who, upon experiencing unrequited love, which you know not going to be a very pleasant thing to go through. It can maybe help them find some solace in those feelings. Is that kind of, you know, therapeutic effect of of writing public philosophy something that you had in mind while writing this piece?
2: It is. It is. I meant the piece to be more than just a salve or a band-aid to put over the deep wound that is not having your love returned, but... My hope that it was that it would be a therapeutic or cathartic read, and that it would offer the unrequited lover solace, something to take comfort in, but not merely in, in the band-aid form, but rather as a, something whole and healing, I hope.
0: So obviously your article was very well received. I believe it got shared on multiple forums, such as Twitter and Reddit, and I personally really enjoyed it myself. Do you have any advice for philosophers hoping to write a snappy popular philosophy article like yours?
2: That's a great question. I think that you have to unlearn a little of your philosophical training. I think that when it comes to writing a piece that is exciting and enticing to read, you have to forget some of the old lessons that you've learned um, about concision and clarity, which are still. So important in popular philosophy, but these things tend to take the backseat to emotive language, to pathos, to these kinds of things, to linguistic turns of phrase that will speak to the reader. So, I think that uh, Psyche is a great place to start. Um, Psyche is the sister magazine of Aeon magazine. I approached. Aon with a pitch. Uh, I just cold emailed them and I said, "Hey, I work on the philosophy of love. and this is what I'm thinking about. Would you be interested? And they were. And I encourage anyone to do the same. It feels very risky to just put yourself and your work out there like that. But in my case, the risk paid off was well worth it, and I encourage others to do the same because it really has been an incredible experience.
1: In some kind of uh, public philosophy experiments that I'd done myself in the past, I found myself, you know, as you said, um, putting maybe rigorous analysis into philosophical concepts kind of on the back foot because there are other priorities as well. But there can then kind of be a difficulty when you're transitioning back to academic writing afterwards to try and put that hat back on where you need to be maintaining that kind of rigor again. Is that kind of difficulty something you've experienced? And if so, is there any mechanism... By which you can kind of avoid that difficulty and and switch between those two hats a bit more easily
2: yes i have experienced that difficulty and actually i think the hat metaphor is perfect i think that you have to as a writer as a philosopher wear many hats and the best thing that you can do is to think of them as interchangeable and so sometimes as a philosopher you have to put on your analytic hat sometimes You have to put on your editor's hat and kill your darlings, as they say. And sometimes you have to put on the metaphorical hat. And and that's the one for public philosophy.
1: Another piece that you had, of course, written was uh, back in February this year for Voices in Academia. I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about that piece.
2: Voices of Academia is a mental health blog. And I I wrote a post for them just a few months ago uh, about my diagnosis from last summer. So I have borderline personality disorder, uh, also called BPD, which is essentially an emotional dysregulation disorder. So those with BPD experience unusually intense emotions um, that they have a difficult time managing or coping with. So someone with BPD, uh, instead of feeling sadness, feels grief. Instead of feeling anger, feels rage. Instead of happiness, feels joy. And this is a quite difficult internal experience, as you can imagine. The diagnosis and the subsequent few months of being a philosopher with BPD were were the subjects of the the blog post. Uh, So I just wrote about my experience with the diagnosis and what it's meant for me so far.
0: So do you think living with a personality disorder, which is a sort of unseen kind of disability, presents unique challenges from both your perspective and the institution that accommodates you?
2: Yes, absolutely. Especially because my disorder is the kind that I don't want to be seen. Most of my day is spent regulating my emotions in an attempt to fit in and to not have my atypical emotional experience be noticed, which I think is also the case for many people with a disability. Uh, you try to pass um, as well as you can uh, in, in society. And I think that while there are difficulties accommodating any kind of disability, I think those that are unseen are, yes, even more difficult to accommodate for. Um, and I think that My department has done a really incredible job, I'm happy to say, as far as accommodating my own disability uh, goes, as well as the disabilities of those in my department. My department is actually quite conscious of this sort of thing. So I have been, I've been impressed.
1: Is there anything that you would say from your perspective has helped you living with a personality disorder, meeting the rigorous demands of an academic program in philosophy?
2: So, yes, it is incredibly difficult. And I think that in the best of circumstances, philosophy is emotionally challenging. These are our ideas. Is there anything more personal? Mm -hmm. Uh, And so to offer these up to the world and then to have this kind of sensitivity Uh, that comes along with my disorder is is certainly very challenging. But I find that the insight it gives me into the nature of emotions is so worth the challenge. But it does present a unique challenge, absolutely.
1: And finally then, you're currently co-organizing the Mental Health and Disability Network for graduate philosophy students. Um, What exactly is the project here and how can interested listeners get involved?
2: I'm so glad that you asked. So the Mental Health and Disability Network is a group for, as you said, philosophy graduate students. Um, we uh, connect philosophy graduate students internationally. And the uh, the network is meant to provide support and community for those who are experiencing mental health challenges. It is also meant to promote disability visibility within academia. Uh, So at the moment, the network exists largely on Discord. We have a very active Discord server uh, that if anyone is interested in joining, uh, all they would have to do is send an email to me or to my co-organizer, Parker Rose at UCLA, and either one of us will be very happy to send you a link to join.
0: Alexandra, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Philosopher's Nest. You can find our website at www.philosophersnest.com. And if you're a graduate philosophy student who might like to come on and join us for an episode, feel free to reach out to us at thephilosophersnest at gmail.com.